0: Welcome to OECD Podcasts. This episode is brought to you courtesy of OECD Forum 2020 virtual events. Shoshana Zuboff is the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, A Fight for a Human Future in the New Frontier of Power, which is very timely in view of the impact of COVID-19. What does the digital acceleration in the COVID-19 pandemic mean for our future? She spoke with Anthony Gooch, director of the OECD's Public Affairs and Communications Directorate, about COVID-19 and the digital changes it has accelerated in our lives.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our 60th anniversary OECD Forum virtual event, COVID-19, The Great Digital Acceleration. This marks a key moment to reflect on the past, the present, and the future of economic and societal challenges. And to discuss the role of the OECD in helping address them. Chief among these is of course the COVID-19 pandemic, its impacts and how we may best rise together to the very significant challenges they present us with. We turn today to the great digital acceleration that we have been witnessing in this crisis. By limiting our ability to carry out our daily lives in the physical world, The COVID-19 pandemic has marked an unprecedented acceleration of their migration to the digital sphere. But with uptake accelerating, so have the risks and challenges we face in harnessing digital technologies. The collection and use of private data was already considered a worryingly intrusive feature of our increasingly digital societies. Many fear more general acceptance of such use of personal data when the current situation has been resolved. Let me introduce Shoshana Zuboff. Shoshana is surely one of the most influential voices on the digitalization of our economies. An American author, Harvard professor, social psychologist, philosopher, and scholar, she is the author of numerous books. Her latest, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, A Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power, integrates her lifelong themes, The Digital Revolution, The Evolution of Capitalism, the historical emergence of psychological individuality, and the conditions for human development. It provides startling insights into the phenomenon that she has named surveillance capitalism, an economic system centered around the commodification of personal data with a core purpose of profit making. Your insights could not be more timely.
0: Anthony, thank you so much. You know, as recently as a week ago, I was in a gathering of professionals, folks who I Thought would have known better. And one man intoned the cliche, data is the new oil. I bet you've never heard that. And of course, he used it as a defense of the tech companies. And the idea was that because data is the new oil, they should be able to continue the freedom from democratic rule of law that they have enjoyed, which in fact is the freedom to assign their own laws It is true that data is the new oil. And it is this singular fact that anticipates a new genus of threat. Oil was extracted from the earth and in the absence of public comprehension and law, its uncontrolled use plunged the earth into irreversible peril, along with everything that we cherish. Data is extracted from humanity And in the absence of public comprehension and law, its uncontrolled use promises to plunge humanity into irreversible peril, and with it, everything that we cherish, including democracy and the many-century cycle of triumph, reversal and triumph, that marks the slow, messy, sacrosanct journey toward more truly democratic conditions of existence. In the case of fossil fuels, our nemesis was never oil itself, but the extractors. Similarly, today, our nemesis is not and could never be data or technology, but rather the extractors, led by a handful of giant corporations, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, to name only the largest, along with their complex, far-reaching ecosystems. These are corporate institutions that have pioneered a new economic logic of extraction with a dark and startling twist. These extractors target human nature as their virgin forest or unblemished mountainside, unilaterally claiming private human experience as free raw material for purposes of datafication, computational production, and sales. I have called these economics surveillance capitalism because they depend upon hidden extraction mechanisms that operate outside human awareness, designed as inscrutable and relying on the social relations of the one-way mirror to rob us of the right to combat these corporations have placed the defense of their narrow economic self-interest above the interests of individual sovereignty, democracy, and humanity itself. So to begin, I want to talk a little bit about a concept that I call surveillance exceptionalism, which will shed some light on the success of surveillance capitalism and how we got here. You know, the surveillance capitalists would have us believe in the naturalistic fallacy. You know, that means that their success is evidence of their rightness and goodness, when in fact their success is evidence of a convergence of historical windfalls that allow them to root and flourish outside the rule of law. Chief among these very surprising windfall conditions was the tragedy of 9-11. In the United States, just before 9-11, the year before 9-11, a majority of the Federal Trade Commission had already concluded that the young internet companies' determination to track and monitor their unsuspecting users could not be controlled by self-regulation. And they began to outline comprehensive privacy legislation. But in the months, weeks following the September attacks, the U.S. Congress abruptly turned from a debate about federal privacy law to a preoccupation with connecting the dots, or what became known as total information awareness. I'm sure you've heard that term. Under these new conditions, the novel surveillance practices were enabled and encouraged rather than extinguished. Legal scholars at the time acknowledged this perplexing new public-private symbiosis, explaining that while the US Constitution inhibits surveillance by government actors, there were few, if any, privacy protections for information held in private servers. The intelligence community would have to rely on private enterprise to collect and generate information for it, free of constitutional legal and regulatory constraints, a windfall. By early 2013, the CIA's chief technical officer publicly explained the intelligence challenge, quote, since you can't connect dots that you don't have, it drives us into a mode of fundamentally trying to collect everything and hang on to it forever. That was the modality. And he thanked in his public speech, Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the telcos, and all the rest for providing all the dots. This unwritten doctrine, which I have called surveillance exceptionalism, essentially granted the fledgling companies a license to steal human experience and to render it as proprietary data. By 2007, digital storage had jumped to 97%. And by now, of course, that structural upheaval is considered complete. With so much information available, democracies should be flourishing. Why is the opposite true? I have spent exactly 42 years studying the rise of the digital as an economic force. Over the course of these last two decades, I've watched as surveillance capitalism engineered a fundamentally anti-democratic epistemic coup marked by unprecedented concentrations of knowledge, knowledge about people, and the unaccountable power that accrues to such knowledge. This coup proceeds in three stages. First, the sharp rise in epistemic inequality. Second, the spread of epistemic chaos. And finally, the institutionalization of epistemic dominance. We are in the midst of stage two right now, and the contours of stage three are already in sight. To grasp this coup, I want to convey a brief sense of surveillance capitalism as a revolutionary institution. Surveillance capitalism begins with the secret unilateral extraction of behavioral data from private human experience. Only a fraction of what they take is what we knowingly give. Operations are geared toward harvesting predictive behavioral signals the stoop of your shoulders, exclamation points, your micro-expressions. Extraction is pursued for the sake of certainty. So here we see stage one of the epistemic coup. The license to steal at scale and scope produces a wholly new axis of social inequality, epistemic inequality. This is defined by the growing gap between what I can know and what can be known about me. Citizens of democratic societies have been turned into bystanders as surveillance capitalism builds its knowledge empires from our lives. Now, stage two of the epistemic coup. Epistemic inequality and this radical indifference create the conditions that produce epistemic Chaos. Facebook executive Andy Bosworth once explained the radical indifference in which epistemic chaos thrives. He said, and I quote, We connect people that can be good if they make it positive. Maybe somebody finds love. That can be bad if they make it negative. Maybe someone dies in a terrorist attack. The ugly truth is that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is a de facto good. Remember the naturalistic fallacy. These growth tactics, he continued, are how we got here. End of quote. We are continuously dismayed that these corporations take so little responsibility for the content they display. But for a data extractor to discard data points is like asking a coal mining operation to voluntarily set aside containers of loose coal because it's too dirty. It violates the fundamental logic of the operation. That's why content moderation is always a last resort and therefore so frustrating to the public and lawmakers alike it is undertaken only to maintain data flows, not to curb them, which is to say it's undertaken either to minimize the risk of user withdrawal or to avoid political sanctions that might threaten that license to steal that we've discussed. Content moderation sits at the margins of these companies, an accessory, a public relations necessity, rather like ExxonMobil's Office of Social Responsibility, which brings us to stage three of the epistemic coup, the most significant phase of surveillance capitalism's development, how knowledge begets the power to achieve epistemic dominance. Knowledge about people at this unprecedented scale produces a new kind of power over people For example, the 2016 Trump campaign appears simply to have exploited the full machinery of Facebook's targeting mechanisms offered to all advertisers. Subliminal cues, psychological micro-targeting, social comparison, and so on. But in 2016, they used these mechanisms to effectively persuade a significant plurality of black citizens to refrain from voting, and they achieved this without a single gun or threat of torture. In other words, unequal knowledge produces unequal power, defined as the growing gap between what I can do and what can be done to me. These interventionist mechanisms constitute a new field of capabilities that are economies of action remote behavioral modification at scale, guided by algorithmic parameters to tune and herd behavior towards someone else's objectives. Economies of action produce a new kind of totalizing power. It requires no jackbooted soldiers, no weapons, no threats of terror or murder. Now, the pandemic has become the latest canvas against which All these stages of the epistemic coup are on display vividly, even as as it further accelerates the reach of this new iron cage and reveals just how vulnerable our democracies are to the effects of the epistemic coup. Let me mention some highlights just briefly. First of all, the most obvious effect of the pandemic when it comes to the epistemic coup is of course the growth of surveillance capitalist revenues and with it the growth of epistemic inequality. As more people in more places find themselves wholly dependent on remote services, largely controlled by the institutions of surveillance capitalism, including remote schooling, remote working, telehealth, e-commerce, social media, even as our governments too frequently rely on surveillance capitalism's tracking data, producing a result that citizens are stricken with mistrust in every direction. Consider education for a moment. This is so concerning for me, and I know for all of us, primarily because education is targeted at vast captive and vulnerable populations of our dearest, dearest, dearest human beings on the planet, our young people. This year, as Google's remote education was exploding around the world, New Mexico's Attorney General, Hector Valderas, launched a lawsuit, literally. He launched it in February, just as Google Classroom was literally doubling and tripling its presence all over the world. He launched a lawsuit citing Google's Classroom's educational tools for illicit data extraction practices aimed at children. And I'm going to quote briefly from his lawsuit. It says, quote, Google tracks children across the internet, across devices, in their homes, and well outside the educational sphere all to collect massive quantities of data from young children, not to benefit schools, but to benefit Google's own commercial interests. Close quote. Google Classroom doubled active users to more than 100 million in one month alone between March 2020 and early April. And of course, UNESCO calculates that school closures now affect nearly 2 billion students in at least 150 countries gives you an idea of the canvas against which these new operations are being played out. Now, let's talk about the second phase of the epistemic coup in the pandemic, which has become a global ground zero for epistemic chaos. Right from the start, the virus was intentionally politicized It wasn't difficult. All they had to do was exploit the routine mechanisms that produce epistemic chaos in social media on a daily basis. There's a great deal of research on this, and I will cite only one excellent study by Avaz, published in August. Uh, They exposed 82 websites spreading COVID misinformation, reaching a peak of nearly half a billion Facebook views in the month of April alone. The odd thing is that there was no shortage of high quality COVID information available to Facebook users that month. But Avos found that the top 10 of those 82 nefarious websites drew four times as many views on Facebook, four times, nearly 300 million, as did the websites of the 10 leading health institutions like the WHO and the CDC, only about 70 million. Their extensive analysis concludes that Facebook's modest content moderation efforts were no match for its own operations of algorithmic amplification that favor provocative high engagement content while ignoring meaning just as Bosworth described. In other words, the institutions of surveillance capitalism prevailed, even in the face of an historic life and death emergency. Finally, the pandemic creates an opportunity for surveillance capitalists to build epistemic dominance by extending their presence in the domain of health data and body tracking, coveted territory for these companies, a long game that is the focus of significant investment. As the Wall Street Journal put it not too long ago, the healthcare industry represents the last bounty of personal data yet to be scooped up by these companies, an $8.7 trillion opportunity worldwide. Applications and wearables are key to their strategies. An Apple-led research study on wearables concluded, quote, the ubiquity and remarkable technological progress of wearables provides rich longitudinal information that can be mined for physiological and behavioral signatures. Companies are now peddling wearable trackers as critical to pandemic safety. And these are often targeted at another captive population, employees, This of course is the context in which Google developed its determination to acquire Fitbit. As early as 2013, that activity tracker was already praised by the CIA, noting that Fitbit data discloses gender, height, weight, and provides a 100% guarantee of identification just from assessing a user's gait. In fact, Any computational product that reliably predicts the future of a person's health will be unimaginably lucrative, sold to markets far beyond advertising, from insurers to employers, landlords, lenders, credit card companies, dating services, retailers. My friends, the list is endless. So what does all of this suggest about our historical condition? The questions of our digital future and our democratic future are now inseparable. I've argued that this is not a story about technology and data, but about law and institutions. This is not a pronouncement of doom, but rather a call to action. As we embark on the third decade of our new century, let me just highlight a few principles for us to consider as we embark upon this third decade. We need rights, laws and regulatory solutions purpose built for unprecedented 21st century harms. On the demand side, interrupting and outlawing markets that trade in human futures would eliminate the financial incentives for illegitimate data extraction and the concentrations of knowledge and power produced in that competition for certainty. This competition, as we have seen, produces reliably destructive consequences for people and for democracy. Democratic societies have outlawed other markets that produce reliably dangerous and anti-democratic consequences. If these remedies strike you as impossible or impossibly idealistic, I would humbly suggest that our sense of the possible has been constrained by the acid bath of habituation and normalization that has characterized these last two decades. Can we even recall the virgin feelings of indignation and dismay that accompanied our first realization of hidden tracking and monitoring those means of extraction that became our conditions of existence before we became resigned to the normalization of the abnormal, before we became resigned to the tolerance of the intolerable. I suggest, my friends, that once again, it is time for us to roll up our sleeves as we stand right here, right now, at the frontier of this existential struggle for the soul of our information civilization. This, my friends, is our welcome to the third decade. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. I think it is uh, the contrary of an exaggeration to say that the COVID pandemic in Shoshana's eyes uh, has not only accelerated the digital transformation, but made related risks and challenges far more acute. But with the OECD celebrating its 60th anniversary, uh, it's a a key moment, I think, for us to think collectively about what we can get on and do about it. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash OECD.